Welcome to the Faith FX Podcast. I'm Bernie Vandewall. I'm Mark Buchanan. And this is where faith and life meet. Bernie, you have broken our hearts here at Ambrose by um, taking a job somewhere else. You're not here in Calgary anymore. You're not Ambrose anymore. What no. the heck? What's going on? I um, I returned to the land of my ancestors. <laughs> so uh, you're, you're, is that Norway? Where, where is no, no, no. Well, th- that far back, yeah, be Belgium and Scotland. But no, I. Um, Back in June, I was elected to be the district superintendent uh, of the Canadian Midwest District of the Christian Missionary Alliance, which is uh, located in Regina, Saskatchewan, the town I was born and raised in. So this has been a bit of a whirlwind summer for you then? Oh, yeah. I mean, it's uh, buy a, sell a house, buy a house, relocate, say goodbye to kids. Our, our two boys and our daughter-in-law uh, are remaining here. Uh, you get sell there. your Mustang? I, yeah, I sold my Mustang. Yeah. To my son, though. Oh, okay. So on occasion, I could borrow it uh, if, you know, he leaves anything left of it. Um, but, uh, yeah, packed up, moved, had to move into a new place, unpack boxes, uh, figure out where the stuff goes, uh, get over the feeling that I'm that I'm sleeping in somebody else's house, uh, and all that. So yeah, it's been a it's been a bit of a, a bit of a whirlwind. New job, new responsibilities, completely different than yeah. So sixteen what years have been an academic and twenty twenty oh, years actually, over twenty. I feel like I'm at an auction. I'm going to keep raising the price. Over 20 years. <laughs> like, are you shell shocked? I mean, it's just it's quite a shift to. Uh, from academic life to this? Uh, it is, um, and, and especially it's an on-ramp, right? So it's a new job. Everything's new. I have no idea what I'm doing, which maybe isn't all that different from academics, but, you know. Now, but you said you're back in the, the, the land of your ancestors, yep. Saskatchewan, yep. Regina. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's a homecoming. Yeah, well, what, it was great. Like? I, it's fun, uh, you know, um, I'm 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 reacquainting myself with some family I didn't get to see as often as I like. Uh, my old neighborhood, right, uh, where I grew up, that's kind of cool. Some of my old hangouts, you know, for Regina people, uh, within the first day, we were at the Milky Way getting some ice cream. That was good. Getting some Regina peach. I even went to the hometown fair. Went to the hometown fair, uh, the Queen City X. It was great fun. Uh, took in a little bit of the rodeo. Uh, it was a beautiful prairie night. Stars were shining, and there was a concert. Uh, there's a central park to the uh, the exhibition ground, so we went in there. Probably, oh, I don't know, thousands of people. Certainly, there are thousands of people uh, there for this concert. And it was, um, it was a concert with this guy named... Uh, Paul Brandt. Let's introduce our guest for today, Paul Brandt. Paul Brandt is one of Canada's most loved and most prolific country music artists. Uh, Many, many hits come from him. Uh, I I was reading the other day that six of, I think, the, the the top, I think, 20 biggest hits coming out of Canada are by Paul Brandt. Uh, 11 albums. Uh, just finished a tour that you were at, Bernie. That's what you I was, were just yeah. talking about, the, mm-hmm. the, the Journey Tour. Actually, that wasn't part of the Journey Tour, was it? Uh, it wasn't part of the you Journey Tour. You were touring with Journey? Well, <laughs> <laughs> no, that would have been something. We we did this Journey Tour. Uh, it was um, 
January, February, we went across the country. And, and there were a few different reasons that we did that. Part of it was scheduling because we had a number of different artists on with us. We had the Hunter Brothers uh, from Seanovan, Saskatchewan, great group of guys and, far, you know, real deal farmers, right? Oh, yeah. And, and uh, um, uh, Jess Moskaluk from Saskatchewan, kind of out in that area as well. And she's been female artist of the year for a number of years. And High Valley, and they're tearing it up down in the States, doing an amazing job. We had all of these artists together. So you got to get those schedules figured out. And it just so happened that we ended up touring during the polar vortex. And I, I'm not kidding. We are all five buses at some point broke down. Two tractor trailers broke down. So that, that, that bleak stretch of minus it, whatever. It followed us yeah. across the whole country. We actually, uh, I think it was Saskatoon. It was colder than the surface of Mars that day. And uh, it was uh, a lot to overcome, but we did. These shows, the one that you just saw, right. you know, in Regina, um, that is a part of kind of our, our uh, summer festival tour. And, and uh, we've been across the country doing that. Uh, we finished up here on that in Langley coming up uh, in a couple of weeks. So yeah, it's been a blast having a great time. That's great. One of the things we want to do in this interview, Paul, is, is explore some of the work you do and some of the life you live beyond uh, what the public sees this uh, person up on the stage playing these fantastic songs. But tell us a bit about that. Just who are you? Yeah, sure. Uh, personal yeah. life. Well, you know, I, I, um, I got my start in music when I was about, I guess, uh, six years old. And, and I, you know, my parents started attending a church. And up until that time, we hadn't been going to church at all. Um, they had uh, a moment where their life was changed uh, at a gospel meeting um, that my father's sister had invited um, them to, to come to. And um, it was it's a really cool story in the way that it worked for them. Their marriage was on the rocks. They were having a really difficult time in their relationship. And uh, independently from each other, on the same day, I think probably at exactly the same time, while dad was upstairs just waking up in the morning, mom was downstairs doing some laundry, they met up in the living room and informed each other that they had just given their lives to Christ. Wow. And our life in our family at that point changed. And so we started attending a church and it was all acapella music at this church, a very legalistic church, no instruments allowed. And um, I just fell in love with words. I became a word nerd. You know, mm -hmm. I, I started reading the thesaurus and Bartlett's quotable quotes. And, you know, the preachers that would speak in that church would tear apart um, the original meanings of the words and, uh, you know, bring up the, you know, Latin and Greek and Hebrew roots and the stories. And I just was fascinated and started to write poetry. And by 13, they started attending a church with a little bit more grace infused and I got a guitar and uh, all of a sudden I realized that these these songs these are these poems were songs and I, I put them together and the music started from there so I you know I, I never would have dreamed that I could have done this as a living but it's been 25 years now and uh, I, I I was making music because I loved it and literally came home from work one day I was still living at home mooching off my parents doing that thing around you know, that early 20s thing and uh dad's on the couch and he's got this look on his face and he's like, there's a message on the phone for you. And I pick it up and I heard this voice. Uh, it was a, a Southern accent. She says, Hey, my name's Paige Levy. I'm with Warner Reprise Nashville. I signed D. White Yoakum to the record label and I heard your demo and I think you're real good. I want to come up and hear you and your band play. Give me a call. You know, so I called her up and said, yes, come here and be in my band. And then uh, I hung up the phone. I picked it up again and called a buddy. I'm like, dude, you have to help me put a band together. I didn't have a band. You know, I was <laughs> I was playing for friends and family and I had been entering talent competitions. And that was what created the momentum. And uh, within a month, I had signed a record deal. And within a year, we had a top five single, number one single. And we were doing 180 shows a year. So it was a whirlwind, uh, just a, a crazy, crazy time. 
And it's been fun. It's still better than a real job. And were you married at this point? You get married along the no, way? No. So, yeah, I, I, you know, what, the job that I was at when I got that phone call, I was working at the Alberta Children's Hospital. So I, I, I truly didn't believe that this was something that was going to happen for me from a musical standpoint. It was just kind of a, a, a passion. Yeah. And I, I thought that I was going to be a pedi- pediatrician. That's really what I wanted to do. My math marks weren't great. I was a good student. Math wasn't awesome for me. So I thought, you know, this would be a great way for me to get a foot in the doors. I'd work as an RN, get my degree, and then see if potentially I could apply for med school and kind of bone up as I went. And uh, during that process, the record, you know, the record deal came my way. And uh, I was I was traveling um, quite a bit early in, in uh, the cycle when you release a new album. You do a lot of traveling to uh, radio stations across North America. Sometimes you hit five cities a day. Mm-hmm. Uh, you're literally a FedEx package and you show up and you start to play for people. You know, I mean, you know, the radio I, game, yeah, right? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and yeah. and I um, I took a quick break and came home. Um, this was right before the song My Heart Has a History uh, hit the the airwaves. And I had two days to come home. So I zipped back to Calgary from Nashville. And my parents asked me if I would go to church with them. They had just started attending Center Street Church here in Calgary. And so I I went with them and and I saw this woman get up on stage and sing and I was smitten. And I knew she was going to be the one that I was going to marry Sunday. And uh, so I tried to find her after the service. I couldn't find her anywhere. And, And so I went back to Nashville the next day thinking about the woman I'm going to marry who I've never met, you know, and it, it just continued up until Christmas. I'm like, man, I just wish I could meet this, this gal someday, you know, and, and I, I, the pastor Henry at Center Street Church asked me if I would come back and sing for the Christmas Eve service that year. And I walked in, saw my name on the program, and I saw her name right next to mine. She was singing that night, too. And he, he, he now he tells me now he was totally setting us up, but he didn't know I was interested. And, and so I found her in the audience. I walked up, introduced myself, and said, hey, we're singing together. I'd love it if we could sit at the front and maybe chat a bit before we go up. Somewhere, right? I know, yeah. right? So... Um, she, uh, she got up to sing and then I got up to sing and she waited at the back of the church. And I'll tell you, I had been in front of thousands of people performing by this time. Um, but I've never been so nervous in my life. I'm dying up there. I finished the last chord of, of uh, silent night and I look up and she walked out the back door oh, no. Oh, and no. I still didn't have her phone no. number. Right. So I unplugged the guitar, you know, the big pop on the PA system, you know, and I take off down the aisle, people are clapping and they're looking at me like I've lost it. Like, where's this guy going? You know? And I stopped her before she walked out the back door. And I, I picked her up at church, got her phone number, nice. right? So, and it, it just all took off from there. Very yeah. good. Yeah, yeah. Cool. That's Liz. <laughs> That's and Liz. How, how many years? We're uh, coming up on uh, 24 here now. Wow. Yeah. Lovely. So it's just Two been, children. And, yeah. yeah. Uh, Joe's, Joe's 11, Lily's eight. Um, and uh, those early days before we uh, started our family, Liz was on the road with me. Um, so we got married, um, got our place set up in Nashville, had a honeymoon and got on a bus with 11 smelly musicians and did 180 shows a year. And I'll tell you, for her to put up with that is she just still incredible. Loves you after that, she yeah. still does. You know, <laughs> no, I'm not, she's not always on the road anymore either, but um, she sings in the band and she's sung on every project that I've recorded. So yeah, it's a great partnership. Well, as I said earlier, I had the opportunity to see you live uh, just a couple of weeks ago in, well, now I guess it's more than a couple of weeks ago now, but, uh, and I was struck not only by the fine musicianship and the fun, but one of the things that struck me about the crowd uh, was the demographic 
in a sense, there wasn't one. Yeah. Uh, there were old people, young people, uh, ethnicities all over the place. Is that what you find yeah. normally? It's pretty broad, you know, and I think that this kind of broke open um, when we recorded the song Convoy. Um, you know, initially, the, the record company back in 1996, when I first started with Warner Reprise Nashville, they heavily marketed me as, you know, young country, single, available, you know, male artist, mm-hmm. right? And, and it was, it was kind of teen country sort of yeah. uh, that kind of a feel. So we had a, a very young uh, demographic and, and a lot of screaming going on when I got on stage. And, and um, you know, we kind of continued on and our audience grew with us. But when I cut Convoy, I started to notice that we would have five-year-olds and we would have long distance truck drivers and they're all pumping their fists to Convoy. Right, and there right, was something right. about that connection. And early in, in my career, we had um, some creative differences with the record company and, and it got to a point where we just couldn't see eye to eye on things anymore. So I uh, ended up getting out of that record deal and starting my own label. And during that process, um, you know, it was really important for us to really define what the purpose was. Why were we doing what we were doing? And so my wife and I took some time to, you know, uh, kind of whiteboard it, kind of wrote mm-hmm. all the things that were important to us and the things that we wanted to accomplish. And uh, I'd, I'd read this, um, uh, this book, um, it's an older book by a fellow named Bob Buford and, and it's called Halftime. And a great um, idea ca- comes out of that book when he went through a similar crossroads in his life. And uh, the idea is to whiteboard all of these things that your life is about and then draw a square in the middle of the whiteboard. And then you can only pick one thing and you have to put that in the box. Now, you don't have to get rid of everything else. But those things now have to serve the thing in the box. And it, it's really a wonderful way to sort of titrate and, and, and help yourself to, to maintain focus and make decisions quickly. Because if it doesn't fit through the filter, the thing in the box, then it's an easy no. And sometimes the hardest things in life are not to make decisions between good and bad, mm-hmm. but to make decisions between better and best, yeah. you know, and, and this really helps me with yeah. that. So, um, you know, we kind of went through that process. We, uh, we started, um, you know, moving forward. And our, one of our goals um, once we went through that was to be the premier provider of uh, family-friendly country music in Canada. And I think we've been successful yeah. in that, you know, and, and I think that's I mean, part of the evidence is seeing those, those broad demographics out in the audience. You must have some stories from the road of strange things or hard things or weird things or yeah. beautiful things. Could you tell us one? Yeah, it gets kind of crazy, you know, um, when when you're out there on the road, especially when you're doing so many shows in a row and, and uh, you get into a routine and a rhythm. Uh, the people who are with you, there's no time for fighting. You you have to get along. You're, you're forced into that small space and you become a family pretty quickly and you figure out ways to work things out. Um, you know, I, I think that... Uh, you know, there's, there's so many different stories that, you know, I could, I could dive into. Um, you know, one, one of them for me was, um, we were playing this place uh, in Ontario, Lindsay, Ontario. It was a smaller venue, probably about 1200 to 1500 people in a small old theater. And, uh, you know, I, as a, as a country music artist, you know, one of the things that I went through early in my career, was, I, I, you know, I didn't grow up listening to Christian uh, recorded music. We didn't have any recorded music. Um, you know, the only approved music in our family were, was were Sandy Patty and the Gaithers. And and uh, and then the music that we sang at church. Nothing against those artists, but I was 13 years old. I wanted to rock and roll. My mom said no, you know. And, and I, there was always this tension. And Christian music at that time didn't have the production values that it has today. It didn't, it, you know, so I... I remember at 13, you know, I'd given my life to Christ when I was, um, when I was six years old. And at 13, I felt this, 
gift of music kind of almost wash over me. I just knew that it was something that was a part of me and, and it felt like a calling. And my prayer was that I would be able to use my music in a way that I'd be able to reach people and, uh, who, who didn't necessarily know who he was uh, um, and, and do it in a way where they could understand it, you know, maybe speak their language. And because you know, there is a real language that happens in the church and, and it's a different language mm-hmm. that we see uh, separate from it. And, you know, sometimes when you use the wrong language, with a group of people who don't understand that language, it can be very off-putting. And I wanted to be discerning about the way that I did that with my music. So uh, instead of being a Christian country music artist, I was a country music artist who was a Christian. Mm-hmm. And it's a subtle difference. Um, but it, it allows me to walk this line of being in the world and not of it in a way where I feel like I can still have you know, meaningful conversations with people. So we were playing in Lindsay and before I go on stage, you know, every night, um, I, I pray and ask that, you know, God would, um, you know, just kind of show me if there's anything he wants me to say, you know, um, some, some nights I feel like the message I get back, um, is play your loudest songs as fast as you can and get out of there because they're not really (laughs) listening anyway, you know, and, and, you know, it's great to have a good time and to party. And sometimes it doesn't quite work out that way. Sometimes it's a little bit more specific. And this night I was in the middle of performing and we stopped and we're doing an acoustic set. The crowd was going crazy. It was a really fun night. And I'm about to go into this acoustic set where everything got quiet. And this woman walked down the center aisle and she was carrying her little boy. He was probably six years old. And she goes, wait a minute, wait a minute. She stops the show and like everybody's like looking around going, what's going on here? You know? And uh, she goes, my little boy's sick. He's been sick since he was born and he's having an episode right now and I need to take him to the hospital. But we came to hear Convoy tonight. Would you play that song? And as clear as day, I just felt this impression that, that you know, the Holy Spirit was telling me that I was supposed to pray for that little boy. And, and I'm thinking to myself, in my mind, like, what do you mean? Pray for this right, little boy, right, right. right? And it was clear that I was supposed to stop and pray for him. And so I said, yeah, we'd love to do Convoy for you. But would you mind if I just prayed for your little boy really quick? Well, it was the coolest moment because everyone in the audience, a majority of unchurched audience, they're looking at me like, what do we do now? You know, cowboy hats are coming off and people are like right. getting antsy yeah. and they don't know what to do. And I just prayed a really simple, accessible prayer. You know, I just said, you know, God, you're here. You made music. You love it. You love that we're having a great time tonight. You know this little boy. You know what's going on with him. I pray you'd heal him in Jesus' name. And then it was like, breaker one nine, this here's the rubber duck. And away we went into yeah, the song, right? right? I never, I never, you know, had any follow-up really. I didn't know what was going to happen, you know, after that. But I came back and played that venue again about four or five years later. And we were doing a meet and greet after the show. Mm-hmm. And uh, this group of people were huddled in the corner. There were probably uh, four couples and they wanted to wait until the end to talk to me. So they came up and they said, uh, hey, you know, we just wanted to let you know that we were at that show four years ago. And and that very day we had started a Bible study and, and our conversation in that Bible study was around how we could use our jobs as a ministry opportunity. And you showed us how to do it. And I don't know what happened to that boy. I don't right. even know if that prayer was about mm-hmm. that boy. Maybe it was about these people right. or maybe it was both. I don't know. Um, but to me, that was always just a, it's always been a reminder that, you know, our call as believers, regardless of where we find ourselves, is to be obedient. And and uh, amazing things, you know, kind of can come of, of that. And uh, that was that's one, probably one of my favorite moments um, out on the road performing. 
I love that story. Thank you. Yeah, yeah. Let's shift a bit beyond the Paul Brandt that most people knew, that know the musician, the songwriter, the performer. You have uh, some other deep passions. And in 2017, particularly, you and Liz launched a movement called Not In My City. Tell us about that. What is the work you do? And yeah. um, where, did, where did that come from? Where yeah, is that going? Yeah, thanks for that. You know, 14 years ago, maybe 15 now, um, there was a a special on Dateline NBC on the television show. And it was a profiling work that the International Justice Mission was doing. Um, IJM, founded by Gary Hogan in the in the United States, um, brings together justice um, workers, officials, judges, um, uh, police officers, lawyers to do work around the world, um, using the laws in different countries around the world to bring justice to those areas. And uh, they were doing a project in Southeast Asia uh, in Canada. Cambodia to raise awareness for and to stand up for um, human trafficking victims, especially uh, children who are being trafficked. Um, and this this wasn't specifically uh, this was specifically sex trafficking, not labor trafficking. And we, Liz and I, watched that special. We were very moved by it. And and not long after, um, Samaritan's Purse asked if we would want to go on. Um, a donor trip where we get to go anywhere uh, we could pick out of over 90 countries in the world and go anywhere we wanted and learn more about the work that they were doing there. And so we picked Cambodia because that's where the special had happened. And we thought, wow, we, maybe we can learn more about what's going on with human trafficking. And on that trip, um, we we were exposed to a, an organization that was kind of poorly resourced. The SP people knew of them and they were working uh, to get kids out of a brothel. But all they had resources to do were to, was to pay their rate for the day, these children's rate, the rate that someone would have paid for that child and and take them out for the day. But at the end of the day, they had to take them back. And they would take these kids out to a safe location, let them play with toys and just kind of be kids for the day. But then the horrible reality was ticking on the clock that we were going to have to take these kids back at the end of the day. And then these horrible things can continue to happen to them. And it was it was shattering for us, you know, for 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 Liz and I. And, and you know, I um, it really deeply impacted Liz to the point that we knew that that this issue of trafficking was going to become a part of our lives forever. Like it was, it was that, that deep of a, a, an impact. And um, so I went back on subsequent trips and one of those trips, we were in an area where uh, the youngest of kids were being trafficked. Uh, there was a California based businessman in that area who saw a business opportunity and he was constructing a three story building to be used as a sex destination hotel to accommodate bus loads and plane loads of men from around the world to sexually exploit young children. And I'm, met a little girl on that street that day who was five years old that was being sold six to eight times a night. And you know, I thought to myself as a father, you know, what am I going to tell my kids that I did about this someday? Because I believe, you know, that with knowledge comes responsibility. You know, when we're exposed to these types of things, we all have different capacities to affect change, but we all have the same responsibility. We got to do something, right? Stand up for these kids. And when that, when that, uh, you know, businessman saw us working in that area, he got nervous. And so he decided to move on and, and he put his building on the market trying to get his money out of that right. area. Yeah. So a group of us got together and we bought it and we turned it into a school 
school and a church and a health clinic with the renewed purpose to uh, educate young Cambodian minds who would someday be able to affect change for their nation, right? And uh, I went back four years later, that whole community had changed. What had been a place of death became this just vibrant place where people had pride of ownership and kids were safe. And so uh, not in my city sprang out of that. I had been working at least academic title ever. Um, I was the storyteller in residence at Mount Royal University. And, That's like uh, Mark's show. <laughs> <laughs> well, you, you feel my pain. Uh, so we, uh, we were working with the branding and marketing students there. And I told them this story of trafficking. I told them about that five-year-old. Um, you know, and I told them that the reality is, is that human trafficking is one of the fastest growing crimes in Canada today. The youngest victim I've met in Alberta was only seven years old. This is a problem that's happening around the world. It's the second largest source of illegal income in the world today. And often traffickers who are making over $260,000 a year off of these victims, many of them children, will target large sporting and entertainment events because there's an increased demand for um, exploiting children during that time. And and so the stampede was coming and I thought, what better you know, than to create an awareness campaign around that, that great event so that people could be safe. And the students jumped on board and we came up with this idea for this project called Not In My City um, that would, uh, you know, take a stand um, against trafficking activity in, in our city. And um, it's been wildly successful. In just over two years, we've raised about a million dollars. We've partnered with uh, Calgary and Edmonton International Airports. Uh, we've got full support for the Calgary and Edmonton uh, Police Services, the RCMP in Alberta. And we've been able to bring um, FBI together to help us to be more efficient at what we're doing. And we're, our vision is to move this right across the entire country. So it, people can learn more at notinmycity.ca. Okay. So sort of begs a question to me. So we've, we've, you've talked to us a little bit and I hope you talk to us more about the idea of not in my city, but there's this idea of not in my backyard. Yeah, the NIMBY. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And uh, so how does, how does what you're doing different from the attitude of, I don't care if you do it or not. Right. Just don't do it here. Right. Right. I, you know, I, I think that that becomes a very personal, um, a personal decision of how are you going to, you know, walk through, you know, this, this issue. Uh, and I've, I've spoken with, you know, people who I work with daily who say, you know, this isn't our, this isn't our responsibility to step in on um, things like this. You know, uh, prostitution can provide a, a very um, useful service to some people uh, at certain times. And these are the conversations that I, you know, have had with, with some people, you know, the reality for me is that, you know, whenever we see prostitution increase, the statistics are clear trafficking increases as well and so we we have to take that into account and and and, and be aware of it trafficking and prostitution um, by definition are different things um, what brain research is showing is that most victims have an early childhood trauma. It's called an adverse childhood event. And the science shows that there's an actual chemical and physical change to the brain with those adverse childhood events that then set the child on a course for um, making more and more unhealthy decisions. Often children who um, are abused, this isn't a rule, but often they have uh, weaker social social uh, um, uh, networks and not as much opportunity to be able to reach out for help. And, and so they, they become a lot more vulnerable. 
um, to being groomed and being trafficked. Uh, the average age of being trafficked is 13 years old in Canada. And, uh, you know, my question would be that once that person reaches the age of consent and they're 18, if they've been caught up in this web of trafficking, does it then make it a choice for them? Or are we dealing with years and years of baggage and, and, and injury and, and abuse and, you know, all these things that have brought them to that place? And I've spoken with lived experience, um, you know, trafficking survivors who've told me that up until two years after their, um, they, they were able to get out of that lifestyle and go through rehabilitation, they would have insisted to you that they chose that lifestyle, mm-hmm. but they don't insist that anymore. It, it, and a part of that, it, it goes deep deep into, you know, these, um, you know, their, their personal um, self-worth and their, you know, their, their feelings, they, they, they want to make sure that they're in control. Right. So I, I think that, you know, when you get into that conversation of, you know, the not in my backyard and I just want to close my eyes to this whole thing, the way that a society uh, treats and stands up for and defends its most vulnerable members, it reaches into every single part of, of, um, of that society. You know, the police call it the broken window syndrome. You know, if there's a broken window and nobody fixes it, there's going to be another broken window tomorrow. People mm-hmm. start to believe that, well, this is just okay. And, and the, the best thing to do if you want to have order is y- you fix that window immediately and it sends a message that this isn't all right. Mm-hmm. And that's what we did on that dusty street in Cambodia. We drew that line and said, you can't do that to these kids. Now, I'm not going to be naive and think that these guys aren't going to move somewhere else and try this right. somewhere else. But, but you know, I, I'm going to stand up for these kids. And my focus has to be one kid at a time, yep. you know, and, and c- to continue to be that example moving forward. And my hope is that, and I've seen this happen, we've went, we've gone from literally in our starting to people threatening lawsuits against us. Should we speak, you know, the issue of human trafficking in conjunction with their brand? Okay. To them now turning, turning completely around 180 and saying, we support you. And we had no idea. So I believe that most people who aren't standing up for the victims of human trafficking, I have to believe that either one of two things, they're complicit or they just don't understand. And I'm going to believe that they just don't understand for as long as I can with the hope that maybe we can turn them around. Good answer. That really sets us up well for one of your songs that we want to play. It's called Risk. Yeah. And before we play it, could you give us a bit of a background to the song? Yeah, you know, um, the lyric, I'd rather stand on the edge of a cliff and hang my toes over a bit and jump if they dare me, even if it scares me and I get hurt. And I found this great quote online um, that uh, I was able to use for the song uh, I'd rather build my wings on the way down and I love that idea mm-hmm. of you know you know it, it's not so much um, you know I'm not going to plan for this and I'm just going to kind of close my eyes and jump and hope for the best it's um, an awake abandon it's this idea that I'm I'm going to um, I'm going to prepare myself the best I can and then I'm not going to worry too much I'm going to move forward and I've always loved that idea um, you know the story of Jehoshaphat and in the Old Testament where he's got two armies coming from two different directions and he has to choose which way to go. And he prays this prayer, focusing on the nature of God. And his final word is, we do not know which way to turn, but our eyes are on you. And he picks a direction and goes, that's that moment of risk. Mm-hmm. And that's what I wanted to try and, you know, kind of spill into this. Um, you know, I think that sometimes it's important to stop and read the map and take our time to figure out where we're going next. Um, 
sometimes it's challenging, I think, or difficult, more difficult to steer a car unless it's moving. And God can steer us when we just say, hey, I'm going to dedicate this to you and I'm going to move forward even though I don't see what's coming next. And, and that's what risk is all about. Thank you. Thanks for being an example of a risk taker. This is the song by Paul Brandt, Risk. I'd rather stand on the edge of a cliff And hang my toes over a bit And then jump when they dare me Even if it scares me and I get hurt I'd rather build my wings on the way down Do my best not to fall to the ground And then laugh at my mistakes Cause they're only lessons I'll learn I feel that there's so much that we could talk about, but we're running out of time. What, what's on the, <laughs> that, what? that happens in all my interviews. Oh, I talk too yeah. much. <laughs> but it's so good and it's so rich. Thank you. What, what's on the horizon? What, what do you see in the next yeah, few months? Yeah, you know, I, I, I don't know. I mean, I kind of feel like I'm at one of those risk uh, crossroads again, you know, trying to figure out what's next. You know, I'm, I'm 47 years old now and, and I've been in the business for 25 years. I love music. I've seen incredible changes in this industry. You know, we went from, you know, cassettes to CDs, to MP3s, to now streaming. And, um, you know, even downloads are passe now or streaming now. Right. And, and, so reaching an audience, you have to kind of change your strategy every single time. Um, I love to write and I love to create things. And, um, you know, I've, I've started uh, working towards, um, you know, doing more work on podcasting and, and, um, and video production, um, started writing a book, you know, some of those types of things. And I'm doing a lot of speaking now as well. And I really enjoy it. I uh, had a chance to um, be at my very first TED talk. It was a TEDx YYC here in Calgary uh, recently. And uh, I got to talk about the art of the pivot and that'll be posted soon. I'll get you the okay, link on that cool. as well. And uh, so I've, you know, I'm just kind of, you know, music will always be a spoke in the wheel and be a part of it. It's my passion and I love to do it. Um, but I like to create on a lot of different fronts. And uh, I think you're going to see some pretty fun, exciting things coming out from Paul Brandt here in the not too distant future. Looking forward to that, Paul. Uh, how can people, m- most people listening will know you and of you and your work, but how could they find out more information? Yeah, the, I think the best way to stay up to date is, um, you know, if you don't, if you're not a, you know, familiar with, with you, know, our, you know, my work, um, go to paulbrandt.com and all the information is there the history of it and everything in the about section but um, we're pretty active in social media you know Paul Brandt on, on Twitter uh, I'm Alberta Bound on Instagram and Paul Brandt Official on Facebook and uh, kind of the, the day-to-day journey of what we're up to what we're doing and, and what I find funny or you know challenging or whatever I just kind of throw it all up there and uh, you can kind of join us uh, by, by following us on any of those social media platforms Cool Well Paul thanks Thank for you for taking time out of your very busy schedule to, to join us here uh, we look forward to what's next and uh, we look forward to being with you all again next time we get together on Faith FX. On 
October 16th and 17th, Ambrose University is hosting the annual Downey Lectureship Series with speaker Dr. Elaine Storkey. Visit ambrose.edu for more information.